Well, good morning, Sojourners. Always so good to be with you all. Thank you to all those who serve in music and announcements and the food and chairs and prayer and sound. And there are just other logistical administrative tasks that people are serving in. And thank you to everyone here who is really serving in all your own unique ways, whether that be through meal train and providing, praying, which is absolutely essential, or just the fellowship and encouragement of the saints with one another. All of that makes church church. I cannot stress that enough. Your involvement in any which way is a massive testimony to Christ because it is only made possible by the gospel. You would not be here, and you would not be serving, and you would not be serving with any kind of joy or inclination were not for Christ. And so it is a profound act for all of us to be doing what we are doing, and I'm grateful to the Lord for all of it. <clears throat> so many things to pray for, so many things to rejoice over, so many things to request over, and I hope in a little bit of this, you, you just see how much ministry goes on here, not to see how much ministry goes on here in, in and of itself, but to realize how much we have to depend on the Lord. There is just so much taking place, so many needs, so many things outside of our control, and it is really to that end that this final installment of Daniel 2 speaks about. As I was thinking of how to introduce my time here, I thought of two threes. One is, well, third time's a charm, so uh, you know this is my third try of trying to finish Daniel, and hopefully it will be successful. Or there's another three, which is three strikes and you're out. And that is absolutely true here. There is, uh, yeah, I'm just not going to be able to do it next Sunday or, or other Sundays, so I have to complete the task here. And I think it is highly appropriate, not only because of the, shall we say, ministerial circumstances that we're in, where we're praying for one another and seeing so many needs and seeing so many opportunities for both requests as well as rejoicing. But on top of that, this upcoming week, is Passion Week. And this Sunday, and I hope we do not forget it, it is what we call commonly Palm Sunday. I think so, yes? That'd be really embarrassing if that was not the case. So, uh, although they wouldn't have known that on the recording. So the, uh, but in any case, my heart is that this Sunday, this time together, even if we are in Daniel 2, it be one that prepares our mind and our soul for a very rich week, where we are gazing and loving and understanding the gravity and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, all in preparation for Good Friday, all in preparation for Resurrection Sunday, and our hearts are just all the more, more deeply captured to him. And so that is what my prayer is for this morning. And with that, turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, and we'll try to stitch all of this together. The reason that we have had to spend so much time in Daniel 2, and we just can't seem to complete it, or I can't seem to complete it, is because it is very rich and very involved. And you can't just speed through this. This is intricate, and this is profound, and it is practical. And we know that every part of Daniel 
Every part of Daniel is a testimony that God is superior, and that is attested in a variety of ways. And one of those ways that is found here in Daniel 2 that we have been covering is that God has a plan. He is in total control. And he is not just in control of one nation, that's true, but it's not just that. He is not just in control at the present, that's true, but it's not just that. It is that he is in control of everything in the entire world, past, present, and future, for all time. That is the message of Daniel 2, and what Daniel 2 specifically does is it presents a plan in its most basic form. We are not talking about advanced calculus, advanced eschatology here. We are not talking about the most intricate things that could ever be and all the deep things of the end times. God, in his mercy and abundant wisdom, said, hey, if this is the first time you're being exposed to this, let's start with the basics. Let's start with what is most foundational. Let's start with the easiest things. And Daniel 2 gives it to us in that kind of plain, fundamental, easy fashion that should align and cause us to be able to situate and frame everything we learn about the end times from there. And so what is this basic plan? We learned about it a little bit last week, and that is this, that there will be four nations, count them four, four human nations in world history, symbolized in a dream by a statue, an image of God. These nations were, are the four major superpowers that attempt to say, we're the image of God. We're the ones who are almighty. We're the ones who have all the power that man has and all the potential that man claims and believes that he possesses. We're those nations. And what nations are these? There are four of them. One is Babylon. The other one is Medo-Persia. The third one is Greece. And the fourth one is Rome with an eschatological manifestation of Rome that we have not yet beheld. Four nations, the last one has an iteration that we have not seen yet. And there are some lessons to learn from this basic fourfold structure that we have covered last week. For one, this tells us how we read prophecy. This tells us how prophecy works. You knew that there was a Babylon. It came to pass. You knew that there was a Medo-Persia. And Daniel's prophesying all of this ahead of time and it came to pass. You knew that there was a Greece. We study about Greece in history textbooks to this very day, and it came to pass. And, and then Daniel, far, far, far in advance, pr prophesied with absolute precision, even matching metal and material with what Rome would use. Rome had an iron legion. Daniel talks about the iron feet and the iron legs. And in light of all of that, we know that there's a Rome, and it came to pass in history exactly that way. So when we look at the last part, you could almost say 4.5, or however you'd like to say it, the last smidgen of Daniel's prophecy about the nation, about this eschatological kingdom, what should we expect? That it will happen in history that exact way. Why? Because the first one happened the exact way. Why? Because the second one happened the exact same way. Why? Because the third one happened that way. And why? Because the fourth one, right before the 4.5 one, happened that exact way. Get the pattern? It's not hard. And if we wonder, will that really happen? Will that really take place? How can we be absolutely sure? Go look on Wikipedia. 
Go talk to chat GPT. Go talk to the history textbooks. Go talk to a history professor. Was there a Babylon? Was there a Medo-Persia? Was there a Greece? Was there a Rome? And everyone will say, yes. And was it exactly that way? Yes. So what should we assume? It will be this way in the end with this final eschatological kingdom that Daniel is prophesying. This is real. This is historical. And at the same time, that reality reminds us that the lessons that God wanted to display and reveal through each of these nations, those lessons are real as well. We need to remember, yes, Babylon was so prideful in its boasting that it was the culmination of human power and might, and God said, I gave them that, and that's true, because they came and they went. And Medo-Persia is a reminder that God can use anyone to humble another nation, and that human authority is never eternal. We need to remember that in our own lives and as we see the world today that we are living in. And Greece reminds us of the breadth of God's power, that he not only can raise people to the heights of power, but it is all his authority, but he does that across the world, and he can grant that authority across the entire planet of his creation. That's true too. And the fourth kingdom reminds us of this. That even though there can be a kingdom so terrible and so strong, a kingdom that attempts to imitate Christ and ultimately will become the Antichrist's kingdom, a kingdom that challenges God's authority and challenges the Messiah himself verbatim and explicitly, God says they will be brought down. There is no one who can oppose God. No one. And history has testified to that. Why? Because do we have Rome today? And the answer is, no, we do not. They're long gone. They're dead and away. We study about them in a history book. That's how distant they are. Nevertheless, what does that demonstrate? It's a fact. It is a fact that no one can challenge God and get away with it. That is a fact. It is irrefutable. And even a pagan textbook has to testify to that because it records those events. And so we have how to read prophecy, hermeneutics. We understand that prophecy teaches us lessons. That's theology. And we remember all of this, and I cannot stress it enough, that Daniel, when he gives to us, is not just abstract ideas. He does not just give to us spiritual lessons. There are those things involved, but all of this is real. All of this is historical. This plan that God is laying out, this basic plan Four nations with the final iteration of that fourth nation yet to come. Four kingdoms in human history spanning the totality of world events. That is real. That is not hypothetical. That is not just a plan that is out there. That is not just a plan for up there in heaven. Oh, yeah, that's, that's what happens on Sundays when we talk about things, but not really in everyday life. No, this plan that Daniel just said, that is in every history textbook of world history and ancient history on the internet, likewise in everything, it is in this world, for this world, and in our lives. We must remember that. Sometimes in our lives, we often think about what if. We often talk that way. What if this happened? What if that happened? Oh, this could happen. This could happen. This can't happen. This won't happen. I want this to happen. These are my conversations with college students all the time. <laughs> Dr. Chow, yes, what can I do for you? Well, I was thinking about what happens if 
if I go here and could I make this kind of money and provide for my family in this way and have this kind of occupation and serve the Lord in these ways and live in this state and have this kind of job? And I'm thinking about all these things. And I said, wow, that's amazing. And, and then the person keeps going and says, and it's all predicated on this. What if I sit next to this girl or not in class? Everything hinges on that. Should I do it? I said, praise the Lord, you don't even have to make a decision. Really? Why not? Somebody already sat there. <laughs> the Lord has ordained. We often think about the what if, the what could be, the what might happen. Here's what we need to remember. You don't think about what if, you think about what is. You think about what is. There is a plan of God. It is guaranteed. It doesn't matter the contingencies. It doesn't matter the what ifs. It doesn't matter what might happen or what could happen or what you speculate could happen and your experience here and your experience there. It does not deter. It does not derail the plan of God. Do not think about the what if. Know the what is. Know the what is. And this plan that God outlines in Daniel 2, the basic plan that he has for this world, four steps culminating in the Messiah's kingdom, that is what is. And our hearts should not be enraptured and, not, and should not be distracted and should not be weighed down by what if, but what is, by what is. And we must anchor our hearts and our souls to the truth. In fact, as the author of Hebrews says, that Hope is an anchor to our soul for that very reason. Because it is not a what if, it is a what is. It is not a hypothetical. It is not a subjective idea. It is not a predicated notion. It is absolute truth. And this isn't just the nature, excuse me, of the plan of God, but the sovereignty of God. This is the emphasis of Daniel 2 so far as well. Because sometimes our problem is this, that we say, oh, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. It's, it's a mantra that we can often lapse into. It's a knee-jerk reaction. Whenever a situation comes up, you just say God is sovereign. And we, we might believe that. We might believe that in part, or we might just instinctively say it and not believe it. But what Daniel reminds us is, just as God's plan is real, so even more real is his sovereignty over this world. Sometimes we just say, oh, God's in control, and it's just a coping mechanism, but it's not our conviction. It's not our hope. And what we need to remember in Daniel 2, and what Daniel 2 demonstrates to a proud king, Nebuchadnezzar, and a humble Jewish boy named Daniel, is this reality, which is our God, when we say he's sovereign, it doesn't just mean he's ruling the angels up in heaven. When we say our God is sovereign, it doesn't just mean that he has this generic responsibility over the earth, but everything is kind of going the way he generally manages it. No, what it means is this, that he is in control of real people in real nations, the entire world, and his sovereignty is not hypothetical. His sovereignty is not just heavenly. His sovereignty is not just abstract. His sovereignty is not just an 
philosophical idea that we need to make the world make sense. His sovereignty is real. It is tangible. If there was a Babylon, and if there was a Medo-Persia, and if there was a Greece, and if there was a Rome, you could touch it, you could feel it, you could observe it. That's how real God's sovereignty is. We need to remember that. If we wonder, if you're wondering in the situation in your life, how do I know that God's in control of that? What kind of sovereignty does he have? He has the kind of sovereignty that makes history, that forms the facts of history. It is a factual sovereignty. And it is that kind of effectiveness that he possesses. Therefore, when we think about our lives, is he really in control of this? Yes, he is. Absolutely. As factual as a biography. As factual as those nations rising and falling. As factual as every single fact that there is. If you ever doubt how in control, how sovereign, how invasive his governance is over our existence, just remember Daniel 2. Just remember Daniel 2. People don't just say God is sovereign as a mechanism to comfort their souls and make them feel better. This is a fact. He has dictated what happens in this world every single step. And history is the reverberation and the illustration and the reflection of that control. And as such, it is as factual and as real and as tangible as that history is. So real, so factual, so tangible is the sovereignty of God. And that's what we need to remember every time we are struggling. That is what we need to remember every time we have questions. God's sovereignty is not just an idea or the figment of our imagination. It is a fact. It is operative. And it is this kind of real. That's what we need to recall. So we have four nations, the framework of history, the establishment of God's sovereignty, the presentation of the nature of his control over this world. And while there's a lot to learn about God and his plan through these four nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and an eschatological manifestation of Rome to come, there is something greater than all of that. There is someone greater than and all of that, and all that we have discussed about the four nations, and all that Daniel has presented about these four nations, is moving somewhere, and to someone, and that's Christ. Because we don't need to think about just four nations of the world. We don't even need to just think about why God is sovereign, and how he is sovereign over all of that, predicting everything ahead of time, which is a massive affirmation of the inspired and revelatory nature of his word. That's glorious in of itself, but all of that has a point. And God is saving and driving all of this for his son and for a kingdom that exceeds all other kingdoms of this world. You want to get to Christ. I want to get to Christ. And the whole goal of everything that Daniel has at the end of his explanation and declaration to Nebuchadnezzar is simply this. You need to know the true king of kings. I called you the king of kings, but you really weren't and you really aren't. And you're going to learn that in a couple years anyways. But I'll introduce you to the real one. 
And we want to fix our eyes on Christ. And we want to know what is of the greatest value, of the greatest wonder. And brothers and sisters, when we study these things, it is bringing us the greatest hope and encouragement that there is because our God has a plan. And it's not just about four nations. It's about the one kingdom to rule them all. And all of those nations just prove ultimately this. He will do what he wishes in the end, and it will be glorious. That is the message. That is the last lesson. And the way I think we could summarize the last part of Daniel 2, verses 44 through 49, is just in two simple parts. You have the Savior's kingdom, and you have an unstoppable plan. You have the Savior's kingdom, and you have an unstoppable plan. Yes, even at this moment, as Daniel presents the Savior's kingdom and the unstoppable plan, it is the basic presentation, I grant it. And there's much to learn about eschatology, I grant it. Amen and amen. And there is history and there is theology, but never forget this. The whole point of why Daniel's presenting it is so that we exalt the true King of Kings, the Son of Man, the one who is the great I am, and to have blissful hope in his kingdom. And so with that, let's talk about those two points. Let's talk about verse 44 and the Savior's kingdom, the Savior's kingdom. And I kid you not, in this first point, the Savior's kingdom, verse 44, and a little bit of verse 45 to be fair, there are seven points Thankfully, they're all alliterated. Now you kind of know why I just stopped last week. Because I thought, well, we've got five minutes, which means approximately like 45 seconds a point. So, I, you know, it just wouldn't work. And so I just decided to give up. So there's a reason for that. Because there's seven points here. It's amazing, the richness of this text. And each point, yes, it helps us to know Christ's kingdom, but what each point does is it demonstrates the glory of Christ and the glory of our hope. So with that, let's go through this now. Point one of the Savior's kingdom, it's an eschatological kingdom. It's an eschatological kingdom. Notice the first phrase of verse 44. And in the days of those kings... In the days of those kings. Stop there. Immediately, you're wondering, what kings are we talking about? Where, where do we get these kings from? Do you remember there was a basic plan? A plan that had four nations, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And within Rome, we even noted that unlike the picture of the statue, which was all blended together, particularly with the legs of iron and the feet of iron and clay, Daniel deliberately in the explanation, he talks about the legs, and then he pauses, and then he talks about the feet of iron and clay. He differentiates the two. Do you recall this? Why? Because he was making a differentiation between one manifestation of the kingdom of Rome and a later manifestation of the kingdom of Rome. One manifestation was pure iron. The second manifestation was completely different. It was made of iron and clay. And in fact, it involved the feet. And Daniel even emphasizes that the feet has toes. Now, normally, do you not remember that you normally have how many toes? 
10. And do you recall that this is setting up, because this is the basis, this is the foundation, for what we read in Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. And it says that in the eschaton, in the last days, there will be a crazy kingdom that arises. It will have iron teeth, which matches what we have here. And it says this, it will have 10 horns, just like the statue has 10 toes. They match. They're supposed to correspond. And the 10 horns and the 10 toes are 10 rulers. 10 rulers. This is a confederation. This is a conflagration of individuals representing nations trying to form a confederacy together, a unit together, unlike what Rome was. And in the days of those kings already hints to us that Daniel is speaking of that ten-king confederacy, the ten-toe, ten-horn, ten-ruler union and unit. That is what is going on here. It is in a very specific time and a very specific age of history that God's kingdom will come in the days of those kings, those kings of that not just any kingdom, Not just Rome, but the final iteration of Rome. That's when these kings, that's when this kingdom will come. That is what Daniel is asserting. It is an eschatological kingdom. This is very important. This is very important because sometimes as we think about eschatological views, sometimes people say, oh, well, I think the kingdom's right now. Oh, I think the kingdom's always been. Oh, I think that the kingdom will happen in a couple years from now. Well, God is very specific here. God is very specific. This is the basics, remember? This is the fundamentals of eschatology. God's kingdom will fully be here at a specific time. And that time is in the last iteration of the kingdom of Rome. When you have 10 kings ruling in Rome, those are the days that God's kingdom will come. This is not just something that happens now. This is not just something that happened in the past. This is something distinctive for a distinct period of history that has not happened yet. It will happen in the future. And therefore, like the subtitle says, it is eschatological. Eschatological. This kingdom is something future. Now, the entire point of why Daniel is saying this is not just to give us an outline of history, which is absolutely true, and now we can kind of trace things. We know that Christ's kingdom is not yet. Christ's kingdom is to come, absolutely and amen, but there is a reason for it, and the reason is simply this, and we, we often say this, do we not? You always save the best what? For last. You always save the best for last. This is the climax of everything. God has saved his son for last. He has allowed all of history to come in so that you meet the culmination of history. He has allowed all theology to be revealed. Why? To reveal the one who culminates all theology. He has allowed everything to be traced out and everything to happen the way it happens. Why? To introduce the one who is the culmination of it all. Let me just say it this way. You have not seen anything yet. If you think Oh, yes, Christ's kingdom will just be a little bit better than what I have now. You have not seen anything yet. God has saved the best for last. 
It is not now. It is not what is happening at this current moment. God has reserved it for a specific period of time, and we should frame that in our minds, but we should also know why God has arranged it that way. It is because he has saved the best for last, his son for last, and his son's kingdom for last. It is the culmination of all history. It is the culmination of all authority. It is the culmination of all theology. It is something you have never seen before, and that is on purpose. He has saved it for the end. This is an eschatological kingdom, an eschatological kingdom. Second, this is not just an eschatological kingdom. This is an exalted kingdom. I love this. In the days of those kings, in that end time, that fourth kingdom in its final manifestation with the ten king confederacy, the next phrase, the God of heaven. Stop there. Why? does Daniel emphasize God? And why does Daniel describe God, not just as God, that would be good enough, but of heaven? Because everything about this statue screams out earth. The statue, like we said earlier, is the image, the image of God in man. That's earth. These kingdoms, they're what kind of kingdoms? Earthly kingdoms, worldly kingdoms, Kingdoms that derive from people who are of the earth. All authority and power they have is of man, which is what? Of the earth. Where are they located? On the earth. Where are they derived from? The earth. Everything about this is where? The earth. In fact, even if you read in the Aramaic, where it talks about that there is a kingdom that will be inferior to you. Verse 39 of chapter 2, the word inferior is earthward. Because everything is about going to the earth. And now, what does Daniel say? Nebuchadnezzar, you thought you were so mighty. You thought everything on this world was so powerful. You're right. There's a semblance of power here. You're right. It looks mighty and strong. But you need to know this. Earth is not all that there is. Earth is not the be-all and end-all. Why? Because not only is there a God, this God is not of earth. This God is of what? heaven he is transcendent above it all he is beyond your might he is beyond your authority he is beyond your power and all the might and power and authority you think you have it's just derived from him there is someone and something that goes far exceedingly beyond your limitations trace out the boundary of your finiteness and there is someone and something that transcends it and that is the god of heaven And this God of heaven is required to establish his son's kingdom because the way that this kingdom will be established cannot be explained by any human power and authority and cannot be derived by any human might or activity. You know, when you think about people's power, even kids understand this. I remember talking and teaching about power to children and and they, they often say this, yeah, God's so powerful, he could blow up the whole earth. And you, you sit there and you think, that's factually true. Second Peter 3, yeah, elements are going to melt. That's, that, yeah, amen, yes, he's that powerful. And we chuckle at that. We say, yeah, that's cute that kids think this way. It's not just kids. What do people say about the nuclear arsenal of the world? It can blow up the world 24 times over. So powerful are these nations. Look at how they can destroy the world. And I just think about that for a second. I think, You only need to do it once. 
Why do you need to do it 23 more times? It's worthless at that point. You just need to do it once. And what it exposes is this. We often think about human power in terms of destruction. And we measure it in terms of destruction. And there's truth to that. But you know, blowing up the world 24 times is destructive and powerful. It's only meaningful if in between each time you can recreate the world again. But you can't. You can't. And that exposes the limitation of human power. Understand this, it's fascinating. That Genesis 1-1, we're familiar with it. In the beginning, God what? Created. This is a very important fact, truth. The word create in scripture, the Hebrew word, is only used with God. Man never creates. He can make, he can do, that's true. But he can never create. We say, look at man's power, how much he can destroy, how much he can devastate. And there's truth in that. There is a terrifying yield and intensity to all of that. But our God does one better. In fact, our God does one original, which is this. He alone creates. Do you want to know why the God of heaven must come in And notice the next phrase. He will cause a kingdom to rise up, something you've never seen before. How will he do that? Yes, will involve the destruction of all kingdoms of this world. Absolutely. Will that mean that God can out-destroy everyone who thinks that they can destroy? Absolutely. Will God have more might than the might of all men put together? Absolutely. But this is what God will do one better than all men categorically having a type of authority that exceeds everyone in their ability to even imagine this, he will make all things new. He will make all things right. He will not just overthrow one order. He will establish a new one that is right and just and pure. The scriptures are replete with this information. We know, even in Genesis 49, all the way back in the book of Genesis, after the fall has taken place, in the same book that recounted that event, it says that there will be a time when people will drink grapes, juice, and wine like they do water, and they'll be able to wash their clothes in milk. Why? Because the whole world will be so rejuvenated that there will be no more hunger and no more curse and everything will be plentiful. We read in the book of Isaiah chapter 11 that on that day when the Lord Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom, that animals will get along. I don't think we sometimes understand this, but you do realize that a zoo is a result of the fall. When you should go to a zoo, you should weep. Because it's evidence of depravity. And it's not just because we kept the animals. It's that the fact that the animals had to be kept. In the millennial kingdom, it says this, that the lion and the lamb and the bear, they're all going to be playing together. And the infant, the infant can play with the viper. A viper that would normally kill an infant is at the command of an infant because creation has been restored. It says this in Zechariah chapter 8, that people will be so long lived that they will just hang out in the streets, which already just boggles your mind if you know anything about California roads. How can you hang out in a street? That's called death. Why would you do that? Not in the millennial kingdom. You can hang out in the street, no problem. Total peace, 
total security, total long life. Their heads will be bowed on a staff, it says, because of old age. It says in Isaiah 65 that someone who dies at age 100 will be considered a baby, a nursing baby. A hundred? And you're a nursing baby? It's like you graduated kindergarten at 500. Everything will be made right. The only light will be the light of God. That's what Isaiah says. That's what Zechariah declares. That's what Ezekiel says. There will be no more sun, moon, and stars. Everyone will just walk in the light of God's light. Everything will be made right. Water made right. Light made right. People made right. Animals made right. Everything made right. No man can do that. No man can do that. Man can destroy it all. They can do that. But no man can make it right. And you know what makes heaven, you know what makes this kingdom so spectacular? Is that the God of heaven acts. He uses a power you have never seen before. An authority and might that the world has never been able to imagine or even imitate before. The God of heaven does that so that heaven will be on earth. That is what takes place. This is an exalted kingdom. Imagine just for a second a world where everything is exactly, not just the way it should be, the way God wanted it to be. That is what our God does. That's an exalted kingdom. An exalted kingdom. By the way, notice it says this in the text, he will cause a kingdom to rise up, to rise up. The statue was rising. One nation, it says in Daniel 2, was rising up after the other. This one rises above them all. If you've ever thought, oh, that country, that nation is so cool, is so neat, is so clean, is so organized, whatever adjective you want, you've never seen anything yet. This one arises above them all. This one is where everything truly is perfect. It's perfect. Amen. Yes, indeed. Here's the third. It's not just that this kingdom's eschatological. It's not just that this kingdom is exalted. This kingdom, third E, is what? Earthly. It is earthly. You say, how do you know that? Because. Notice in the text, it says this, and in those days of the kings, the God of heaven will cause what? A kingdom. Look at that word with me, a kingdom. If you look at the word kingdom throughout the book of Daniel, if you look at the word kingdom throughout Daniel chapter 2, guess what you realize very quickly? It's an earthly kingdom. That's all we're talking about, an earthly country, an earthly place with a person who rules on that earth for a specific period of time in a specific location. Let's just review. Is Babylon a kingdom? Yes. Is it a real place? Yes. At a real time? Yes. Occupying real space? Yes. On this earth? Yes. Okay. How about Medo-Persia? Is it a kingdom? Yeah, it's labeled as such in Daniel chapter 2. Is it a real place? Yes. At a real time? Yes. Operating and occupying real space? Yes. How about Greece? Was it a real place? Yes, still is. At a real time? Yes. Occupying real space? Yes. How about Rome? Same thing. They're all labeled a what? A kingdom. 
So what do you think this kingdom's going to be? The same thing, just bigger, better, and best. That's what this is. This is not just an abstract kingdom. This is not just a kingdom in your heart. This is not just a kingdom in heaven. This is a kingdom on earth occupying real space for a real period of time with a real ruler over it in a real place of history this is space and time physical you can touch it kingdom why because it's a called a what a kingdom and the word kingdom has been consistently defined as such throughout the entire book of daniel and even throughout the entire old testament into the new testament that's why we call this the way it is this is an earthly kingdom and that matters That matters in so many different ways, that it's an earthly kingdom. For one, because that means this, when we say that our God rules and Christ has authority, that's a real authority. That's not just a made-up authority. That's not just, oh, well, God has this abstract authority in spite of what everybody else is doing in the world. No, he has absolute authority. It is demonstrable. It is tangible. Why? Because he has a kingdom on this earth And he is ruling. Likewise, his victory is real. His victory is real. Because why? He had to defeat real kingdoms to set up his own kingdom. And that demonstrates something that happened about him is real, not just theoretical. If we don't understand the logic of this, let me just put it this way. Sometimes when children play sports, some children, when they lose, have the not-so-best-of-attitudes. And one child one time went up to the opposing team and he said, you may have won this game, but in the baseball in my mind, I won. (laughs) And all the kids looked at this guy, this future philosopher, and just said, what do we do with this guy? Just, Just shake hands, just shake hands. It's okay. And we laugh. Why? Because if you win in the baseball in your mind, you have not won anything. That's a myth. You've just imagined it. It's not real. If God in his son said, look at my son, he reigns over nothing. If God in his son said, look, he conquered nothing and no one. Then he had no conquest and he had no authority and victory. No, what will happen in the end is God says, I win on every game. I win in every plane. I win in every area and I will win here. Not just in heaven, but also where? On earth. And I will display my son for a kingdom that is longer than any kingdom in this world and a kingdom that will extend into eternity in a new heavens and new earth so that without a shadow of a doubt, everyone knows all power and all victory, it really happened and it really is in my son. This is no imaginary victory and that will be declared and it will be declared without a shadow of a doubt because it is the fact on the ground. It matters that the kingdom is earthly. Put it simple. Did God create a world that he had to concede he lost? If the answer to that question is no, then there must be an earthly kingdom where God says, I made this world for my glory and it will be for my glory in the end. That is what we understand. This kingdom is eschatological. It's exalted. It's earthly. Point four, it's eternal. It's eternal. This kingdom will rise up, and notice the last phrase of this sentence, which will never be destroyed. It will never be destroyed. 
the idea of destruction, the idea to be destroyed is for something to not only be obliterated and crushed, but even more, it's damaged, it's ruined, it's, it's hurt, it's injured badly. It's in fact used of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, and Nebuchadnezzar, even when he eats grass and is humiliated, he's not destroyed in the sense that he doesn't exist anymore. He's just completely humiliated and lowered, and all the quality of his life is reduced dramatically. When we talk about then a kingdom which will never be destroyed, we mean this, that it will always be at the peak of what it is. It will never diminish. It will never be reduced. It will never, it will never change. It is always perfect and remains in perfection. And it will do that forever. It will do that forever. You know, sometimes you really just can't have it both ways. Sometimes people say, well, heaven, will the kingdom be boring? Because all it is is just forever just doing the same things. And you can't say that and then also say later on on vacation, I just wish this would never end. Which is it? Do you want it to end or do you think it's boring? Which one, do you, which one is it? And look, if we can imagine a perfect moment and people say, I'd never want this to end. I never want this to be done. Don't change a thing. Don't alter it in any way. God says, my kingdom will never be destroyed. Its perfection will never be altered. It will never be diminished. It's the perfect moment forever. It's the moment you never want to end that will never what? End. That is this kingdom. It's eternal. This kingdom's also exclusive. This kingdom will never be destroyed. And it says in the next phrase, and that kingdom will not be left for another people not be left for another people. Every kingdom so far was taken over by another. Babylon, taken over by Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia, taken over by Greece. Greece, taken over by Rome. Rome, taken over by an eschatological Rome. And the eschatological Rome, ultimately, by the Messiah. Every kingdom that has been known to man always is taken over by someone else. It's always taken over by someone else. That's Par for the course. This kingdom is unique and distinctive. Why? Because that's not true. It's the only kingdom ever in history, ever in, in the creation of creation, that has ever been this way. It's astounding to think about. And you can think of it this way. Have you ever seen those bumper stickers that say coexist? And we just groan about that. No, that's not how truth works. There will be no coexist with this kingdom. It is not left for another. No one will ever be a rival. No one will ever be a competitor. No one will ever be able to pervert, subvert, give a parallel to what this kingdom is. It's just this kingdom forever. It's pure. It's pure. It's truth. And think of it this way, we are blessed in our lives in the United States to not fear an enemy threat constantly, an existential threat constantly. We are blessed by that. We should not take that for granted. If you go to other nations around the world, that is not true. That is not true. And even now, sometimes when we hear of domestic terrorism, or we hear of foreign terrorism, or we hear of foreign threats abroad or local we get a little agitated. 
because our safety is rocked. This kingdom will never be left for another. For the first time, the whole world will be safe. Will be safe. There will be no threat. There is nothing hanging over your head. There is no need to look over your shoulder. Why? This kingdom will not be left for another. There is not just a re no remote possibility that this will happen. There is no possibility that, that it will happen. There is no option. This kingdom is safe. And so we have an eschatological, exalted, earthly, eternal, exclusive kingdom. And all that that means is point six, that this kingdom is the end of all kingdoms. Notice the, last, the next to last phrase. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself will stand forever. That's what this kingdom does. It's the end of all kingdoms. It will crush, and I love this, it will put an end to all kingdoms. If you look at all the previous kingdoms that were talked about, from Babylon to even Rome or eschatological Rome, it uses this word crushed, but it cannot use the word end. It crushed and pulverized. It crushed and shattered. Why? Because that's what Rome did. It crushed things. It tried to be as powerful as the Messiah, but it couldn't actually end those kingdoms. It just had to put the pieces together. If you remember what we talked about last time, it's like when mom says to the children, dad's coming home and he's going to deal with this. And all of a sudden, the children just start to behave. It's not because they had a revival in their heart and decided to join Abba's kingdom. It is because they are just afraid, but they have retain their autonomy they have retained their identity they have retained their independence and that's what rome did yeah it crushed nations but those nations still were their own nations they were under rome's thumb and they knew that they had been broken but they were their own thing and so those kingdoms continued even though rome was their master but not so with the messiah's kingdom it doesn't crush and just shatter. It doesn't just crush and pulverize. It crushes, and notice what the text says. It puts an end to all these nations. They are no longer having any power, any autonomy, any independence any longer. They belong to one. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. There is really one nation. To use the analogy, it really would have been if Mom said to the children, Abba's coming home, and all the children just tear their clothes in sackcloth and ashes and say, we repent, we repent, we join the winning side, and we submit our lives forever. And you say, that's crazy. Yes, this side of heaven, not that side. Every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there will be no resistance. And there will be no disobedience. They will submit to him. In fact, the last phrase, I love it. It itself will stand forever. It is resilient. It is above. But I love the word stand. Because actually the word stand is the same word as arise. Do you not recall that the statue was rising up? Do you not recall that one nation rose after the other? Do you not recall that in verse 44, God says that he will cause his kingdom to rise up? So how did you get the word stand and the word rise up? It's simple, especially if you're tall. When you rise up, it takes a little bit of time. And then when you get all the way up, you stand because you're at the peak of rising. And here is what God says, nation after nation rises up, rises up, rises up. Only one kingdom reaches the top, and it stands. And that's the kingdom of God's Son, 
it is the end of all kingdoms. And you say, wow, this kingdom is eschatological, save the best for last, exalted, a power that you cannot even conceive of. It's earthly, victory here, eternal, never fades, exclusive, no threat, it's safe, it's the end, it's the ultimate. Is there anything better than that? Yes, point seven, it's established by Christ. It's established by Christ. Verse 45, everything about this kingdom has one purpose, and it is so that God's Son will be glorified. Verse 45, inasmuch as you saw that a stone, that is the Messiah. Who establishes this kingdom? The Messiah does. The one who has been called the stone, the faithful one, the unbreakable one, the reliable one. And why is he a stone here? Not only because he crushes, but because he's the most reliable one and the most faithful one. Why? Because he will complete every single promise of God. That's why he's cut out, notice of this, of the mountain without hands. He is divine and he is cut out of the mountain. Not out of the statue, but out of the what? The mountain. His power is not of this world. Why? Because he's not of this world. He is of what? Heaven. He is a heavenly king. And that is what the earth will understand in the end. This is not just a mere man. When he came in his first coming, people just thought he was a man. At his second coming, they will understand the truth. This is not just a man. He is God-man. He is the ultimate one. He is the one cut out of the mountain without hands. And he will have the ultimate victory in the end. Why? Because he crushes. And he is the one who has the defining blow. And he has the comprehensive blow in that. Why? Not just... One thing, the iron, but what? The iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. He will destroy it all. He alone has the power. And everything that we said about the kingdom, save the best for last, that magnifies Christ. That it is a power that man does not have. Why? Because it is of Christ. Earthly, his victory. Eternal, unfading, because that's his nature. Exclusive, because he is exalted. And in the end, he will be the ultimate one. It is all for the glory of Christ. He has the supreme victory of all. And all of this, in its tangible form, is tangible evidence. He will rule forever. And he is the only king of kings and lord of lords. This is the Savior's kingdom. And now, if you think about this by way of application... You might think, yeah, if we're thinking about all those different eschatological views and this is the most basic presentation of it all, well, if you think about amillennialism, which says the kingdom is right now, well, that doesn't work because the kingdom is supposed to be eschatological. That doesn't work because God in heaven is supposed to do this miraculous work. That doesn't work because the kingdom is supposed to be earthly. That doesn't work because the kingdom is not only eternal but exclusive. You don't coexist. But right now, if God is reigning, other people are reigning, that's coexistence. That doesn't work. And it doesn't work because it's not the end of all kingdoms. We know that. So amillennialism doesn't fit the basic portrayal we have here. Postmillennialism, that we establish the kingdom and then Christ comes, that doesn't work because what's the seventh point? The kingdom is established by who? Christ. So that doesn't work. The only one that works is premillennialism. Christ will establish a kingdom with no end, a kingdom that has nobody left for, a kingdom that's eternal, earthly, exalted, and eschatological. That is why we are premillennial, because it fits exactly what Daniel 2 says. And this is all about the glory of Christ, though. Don't lose that and don't lose this. Was Rome a real kingdom? Yes. Could you touch it and feel it? Could you even go on a trip to Greece or Rome or Babylon or to Persia You might have trouble entering some of those countries, but if you went, could you touch, 
Could you feel the remnants of that kingdom? And the answer is yes. Know this. Christ's kingdom will be that real. You will touch it. You will feel it. You will see it. You will experience it with a glorified body, with your eyes, and with your hands. That's the hope that we have is real. And if you're wondering, are we sure it's going to happen that way? Was there a Babylon? Yes. Was there a Greece? Yes. Was there a Medo-Persia? Yes. Was there a Rome? Yes. So will there be a final kingdom? Yes. God has made his promise that sure, and he's provided all the evidence of it. And by the way, you can't stop it. Verses 46 through 49 in negative three minutes. Here we go. I have to finish this part, otherwise my department head will, will just laugh at me. So, the, uh, so verses 46 through 49, just know this, there's, this kingdom's unstoppable. And you say, how so? Because when this dream is revealed... What you have is it is so powerful in its revelation that it actually demonstrates you cannot stop the train that is God's plan. What happens? Verse 46, King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and said for them to present to him an offering and fragrant incense. You say, what is the significance of that? It was so powerful. Nebuchadnezzar is not worshiping Daniel. That will be very clear in verse 47. And Nebuchadnezzar is not that dumb. He understands Daniel's just a man. But what he is doing is he is so overwhelmed by the truth of this vision that he begins to enact what will happen in the future for every nation. What do they do? They fall on their face before the Lord Jesus Christ because they're inferior, he's superior. What do they do? They start to worship. And they will all do it. As Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm not the only one who has to do this. Everyone around needs to present an offering and fragrant incense to Daniel on behalf of his God. Why? Because you cannot stop God's plan for the nations. This is what will happen. It is illustrated and indicated initially here in verse 46 through 49, but that just projects what's going to happen at the end. And why can't you stop this plan? Because you can't stop the God of this plan. Yes, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, truly your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. What does Nebuchadnezzar realize? Yes, is Nebuchadnezzar still a polytheist? Yeah, that's why he's talking about God of gods and Lord of kings and all this kind of stuff. But what does he start to realize? This God is the most supernatural of all gods. He's the God of gods. This God is the one who rules on earth. Why? Because he's the Lord of what? Kings. You can't stop this God. Yeah, I believe in all the other gods for now. That might change in two chapters when he eats some grass. But for now, he does believe in multiple gods. But he knows this. I cannot stop this God. He rules heaven and earth. And how do I know that? Because he's the only one who can reveal this dream. You cannot stop this plan You cannot stop what God will do for the Gentiles. You cannot stop what God does because it is God. Verse 48, the king promoted Daniel. You cannot stop God's plan for Israel. What did he have to do to Daniel? You, even though I'm the one who conquered you, I'm the one who owns you, I'm the one who tried to make you compromise, I have to promote you. I have to promote you. And I love the word promote. It means to make great. It means to make great. You had a great statue. You had a great mountain. And who is the greater one? The mountain the mountain of Jerusalem. And what does Nebuchadnezzar say? I know, Daniel. Your people will be the great people in the end. And the great statue will be overshadowed by your greatness. You're the great one now. You're the great one now. And here, verse 49, you cannot stop the plan. You know, Daniel sought of the king. I love this. This is hilarious. In earlier, 
in Daniel chapter 2, verse 13, it says this, the king sought to put Daniel to death. Now the whole thing is turned around. Daniel seeks the king. Why? To promote everyone he tried to kill. And what does the king do? Promotes them all. Why? Because not even Nebuchadnezzar can stop the plan of God. He went out to try to kill. He went out to seek to kill. And in the end, those whom he tried to kill, he had to promote. Why? Because you cannot stop this plan. You cannot stop the God of this plan. And so here is the message, plain and clear. God does have a plan. And it will exalt his son. And that plan is set in motion. It is in history. We have experienced it. It is in history. Nebuchadnezzar's reaction solidifies it. It is in history. This is why Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Because he was there to secure the plan. And what did he ride in for? He rode in for such an eschatological, eternal, exalted, earthly, exclusive kingdom that he would establish. That's what he rode in to to secure. And he secured it by his life and by his death and by his resurrection. And when we think of Christ then, we think of that kind of glory, of what he accomplished, not just for us, but for him. That's because God has a plan. It's a plan about the Savior's kingdom and that it is one that is unstoppable. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this chapter. May our eyes be fixed to Christ, knowing his glory, seeing his exaltedness, knowing the price that he paid, knowing his victory, knowing that he rode into Jerusalem and he will ride in one day in even more glory than before. And it will be an exalted time when the God of heaven makes heaven on earth. And all things are made right in the Son for his glory. May we love him and knowing all the weight that is upon him and all the glory that surrounds him, may we adore him. And may this week, as we prepare for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, be one where our affections are so deepened to love the Lord Jesus Christ, to worship him, to magnify him in ways that we've never done in our lives before. Because your plan is real. And the hope that we have in Christ and the kingdom that is to come is not just a a figment of our imagination. Rather, it is fact. It is real and tangible. And we will have that one day because of your son. In whose name we pray, amen.